from PRX. Studio 360. You see it and you instantly know that this figure somehow is something bigger and bolder and more flamboyant than the rest of us. He's godlike in his capacity for action, his power, his ability to act in the world. At the same time, he's subject to unrequited love. He's calm and aware and, and non judgmental. He's the Nietzschean fantasy ideal all wrapped up in a red cape. This is a man that can move stars from their planets. This is a man that can charge around the galaxy. This is a man that can make time turn back. Faster than a speeding bullet. Primary colored, extremely simple, really strong. More powerful than a locomotive. He's an embodiment of how people might want the world to be. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Looking back on it, it feels like it's always been amongst us, you know? Up in the sky! Look! It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Yes, that's Superman. Blue tights, red cape, dark hair, strong jaw from a galaxy far, far away. Does business as a certain Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper. Wages a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. That guy... Not only can he squeeze a lump of coal into a diamond with his bare hand, he's really, really nice. Come on. It's all right. Here you go, miss. Gee, thanks, mister. I'm Kurt Anderson, and in today's episode of Studio 360's American Icon series, we'll look at how this comic book hero has become embedded in all of our lives. And now to our story. Well, it begins, it begins as all things begin in the very beginning. It begins in Krypton. Krypton. Good name for a planet. But Howard Jacobson, a novelist and journalist who loves Superman, thinks there's something more to that name. Krypton is a Greek word and it means secret, hidden. So we know at once there is a secret. What's, what's being hidden? What I think is being hidden is the Jewishness of Superman's origins. Of course, a lot of comics had Jewish origins. The creators of Superman, Captain America, and Batman and Robin were all Jewish. Specifically, those comics were created by a kind of guy Art Spiegelman describes as... The bookish Jew who just couldn't get a franchise in the Slick magazines because he was Jewish, you know, so that it involved working where one could. And if you were interested in making pictures, there was room for only so many Chagalls. But comics didn't discriminate. And in Superman, you can see the worldview of a nebbishy, creative kid with alien parents living in the Midwest. It's Jewish the way Clark Kent is Jewish. You know, it's, it's, it's all seething below the surface because of that Krypton that exploded. Krypton is doomed. Krypton is like an ideal Jewish suburb. All the men are highly scientific and cerebral, and all the women are good-looking, motherly, but care mainly about whether their boys do well at school. It doesn't matter to me whether we live or die. It's only the boy I worry about. Yes, I know. When we meet Krypton, Krypton is about to explode. It's about to blow up. It's all uranium. And I tell you that we must evacuate this planet immediately. They discover that they can't save themselves. It's too late. Superman, who's then called Kal-El... Interesting, I think, that the names that are given to the kryptonites, Jor-El, Kal-El, are very Hebraic or Kabbalic. El means strength or power, comes to mean God. 
El Emet is the God of Truth. So already they are giving Superman a Hebrew name. Superman, whose little baby, Kal-El, is put by his parents in a little spacecraft and sent out into another universe. He will be the last survivor of Krypton, and as his little spaceship goes off into the galaxy, we see Krypton explode. The end of a great civilization. It's a very similar story to the story of Moses. In the book of Exodus, it says that the pharaoh in Egypt, where the Israelites were living, issued a decree to kill all newborn Jewish boys. So Moses' mother tried to hide him. The Bible reads, When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. Moses is found in the bulrushes by the daughter of the pharaoh, who weeps when she sees him and then brings him up as her own. Superman is found when his spaceship comes to land in a little field in rural America by two innocent people out driving. They do exactly what the pharaoh's daughter does. They pick him up, they say, what a little darling, and they weep over him. All these years, as happy as we've been, how I've prayed and prayed the good Lord see fit to give us a child. Superman is a tragic figure, I think. He's full of sadness. I think it's diaspora sadness. He's away from home. He never really belongs. Home doesn't exist to him anymore. Home has been destroyed. The new home that he's made, he can never quite be himself in to the degree that he has to have two different personalities. Neither personality, the real personality, which is the personality of Kal-El from Krypton. And so the question there is, should he assimilate Should he become more like the society he's integrating into, or should he proclaim his difference, proclaim his ethnic identity, as it were, wear wear his colors? That's Henry Jenkins, who directs the Comparative Media Studies program at MIT. When Superman proclaims his colors, it's the tights and cape, all made from the Kryptonian material he was swaddled in when Mr. and Mrs. Kent found him in the field. The cloth he's wearing as Superman was cloth that was carried with him from Krypton in that spaceship. It's the sign of his ethnic heritage. But then kryptonite is a little piece of home, too. Kryptonite is a little slice, a little slither of the element of which his homeland was made. And kryptonite will destroy him. It reminds me of how when I was growing up in the north of England and would ask my grandparents where we came from, Russia was never, ever mentioned. Whether they were ashamed of it partly or afraid of it or just wanted to make a new start, there was always a feeling that it made us a little bit more vulnerable or exposed to ever be reminded of where we come from. I think of kryptonite as shtetlite. Kryptonite is the little bit of the shtetl with which Superman can be reminded of where it is that he comes comes from, and thus is made vulnerable by, by home. Jules Pfeiffer, the great cartoonist, sees something else at stake in Superman's public face of Clark Kent. It's about being a big nerd. These are fantasy publications and fantasy concepts, and they're based on the writers and creators' dream of themselves. Superman's creators were Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, boys living in Cleveland. Jerry wrote the stories, and Joe drew them. And Superman was a perfect consummation of their schoolboy fantasies. Come on, gang! When you go around in high school and you're wearing glasses and you've got acne and everybody around you who's male is big and blonde and muscular and is on the team, which you're not, 
and and has a Lois Lane uh, on his arm, which you don't. The Seagulls and Chesters looked at these jocks, and why wouldn't they think if they only knew? If they only knew who I really am. They were shy, nerdy kids. Gerard Jones wrote a biography of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster called Men of Tomorrow. He describes them as dreamers. They were both myopic. They were both afraid of girls. They loved newspaper comic strips. They loved pulp magazines. They loved action movies, comedy movies, radio shows. They were the prototypical pop culture geeks. And for these guys, who didn't really have much, that was the way to be super, to make up a Superman. They sound like characters in a John Hughes movie, but Jerry Siegel's life was more like an Arthur Miller play. His father was a haberdasher in uh, downtown Cleveland in one of the rougher neighborhoods and was killed during an armed robbery when Jerry was in his teens. It was not long after that that he came up with the idea of this Superman who was bulletproof and who fought criminals. And you can really see Jerry working out that pain and that loss. Jerry created a lot of comic strips in the 30s, but most of them just read like pastiches of someone else's work. But Superman had something else. It had a punch that I think came straight from Jerry's pain. Instantly, several panels about the room slide aside and outstep a number of armed guards. Next moment, Superman is the center of a deafening machine gun barrage. Unharmed by the rain of machine gun bullets, Superman streaks toward his would-be murderers. Good heavens, he won't die! Glad I can't say the same for you. That is from the second issue of Superman, July 1938. This champion of the oppressed was an instant hit. Less than two years after his debut, Superman was a balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. As Superman was becoming more popular, Jerry got married, they bought a house, they started talking about having a kid. There was this move into adulthood. Joe started to date because now at least he had a, he had a hook. You know, he had something. I, I draw Superman. He had something to say. So I think that fantasy was probably seeming a little tiresome or, or juvenile. And so Jerry wrote a story in uh, 1940 in which Superman reveals his identity to Lois and she wants to be his partner in fighting crime. And that was where the story ended. It was Superman and Lois, this team. He might have been imagining some sort of um, Nicanor Charles scenarios. But it was immediately nixed by DC editors because they had a winning formula. So they said, sorry, Jerry, you know, you made this thing up, but you don't own it. And they were right. Jerry and Joe didn't own Superman. They'd sold him outright to DC for 10 bucks a page, $130 in all, which would be the equivalent of maybe $2,000 today. Which at the time was fairly standard. These were young guys trying to break in. They'd sold a lot of other comic strips on the same basis. It just seemed like a natural. But what they weren't thinking about was the fact that this might get turned into movies and radio shows. And, you know, no, no one was looking that far ahead. And after it began to be a hit, actually, they were brought into New York by the publishers and they were promised sort of vaguely that they would share in all these revenues. But a couple people told Jerry Siegel, you really need a lawyer for this? And he said, no, I don't need a lawyer. He didn't, I think he didn't want to cause trouble. He didn't want to spend the money. And I think at some level he wanted to believe that he was a wheeler dealer, that he could handle these people. I mean, these were guys who'd come up from the, the soft porn business and the true crime business and bootlegging. He was dealing with tough street New York businessmen, and he was completely out of his element. 
Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster continued working for almost 10 years on Superman material, but their relationship with DC deteriorated. Eventually, DC gave all the power over the story to its editors. The creators sued for the rights, but lost. Which was the beginning of a long spiral into obscurity and poverty for Jerry and Joe. By the 70s, Jerry Siegel was working as a file clerk. When the first Superman film was coming out, he finally got some attention for his cause, and he and Schuster were given pensions, $35,000 a year. But the box office gross on that first movie? $290 million. Jerry Siegel seemed never to be able to get on top of the situation. That's the cartoonist, Jules Pfeiffer. And always became the victim, over and over and over again. And I met him once or twice, and he was a charming, lovely man, but uh, with a very sad life, as was Joe Schuster's. They got screwed. Superman. Bulletproof, but not tough enough to win against corporate media, and not too tough to sing in a musical. That's next in this hour of Studio 360's American Icons from PRI and WNYC. What would you think of Superman if he really existed? Well, I'd want to stay on his good side. I'm Kurt Anderson, and today on Studio 360, we are deconstructing the Man of Steel. Uh, Superman can run faster than a bullet trample. He can lift an ocean liner out of the water, and uh, he can even stop a train with his bare hands. Can he open a Pullman window? That was Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel in 1940. Superman has been in continuous production from 1938 right through until today. And he has constantly evolved in the modern multimedia age, as Jocelyn Gonzalez explains. Arriving on the heels of pulp figures such as The Shadow or The Spider, Superman wasn't the first comic book hero to capture the public's imagination. But let's say he was the first to leap off the page into multimedia stardom. You know, at the time, radio was the big thing. I mean, it was the dominant form of popular entertainment. Anthony Tallinn is a radio historian, and he's also a former DC Comics color artist. They set out in uh, 1939 to get a Superman radio show on the airwaves. Look, up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! DC Comics hired Bud Collier to voice the Man of Steel. Collier had begun his radio career as a singer, and basically he played Clark Kent as a tenor and would drop his voice an octave as Superman. There, I'm around the bend now. Lois can't see me. This is one job I'm going to tackle in full Superman costume. On the radio, you couldn't see Superman fly or watch him beat up the bad guys, so the radio producers expanded Clark Kent's world at the Daily Planet, adding the characters of newspaper editor Perry White and young reporter Jimmy Olsen. Kryptonite appeared in Superman radio storylines for seven years before it moved into the comic books. Superman started to fly on the radio show, and up till then he just jumped, you know, an eighth of a mile or so in the comic books. Up, up, and away! During its run, the show had nearly five million listeners. This could not be ignored. Hollywood was also interested, but how do you 
take a character who can fly or could see through walls or have this incredible strength with this kind of a costume. Animation historian Jerry Beck. How do you make a movie of that, about that? That was beyond Hollywood at that time. But it wasn't beyond the realm of cartoons. The prestigious film studio Paramount Pictures bought the rights to Superman. They hitched it to a huge production budget and gave the project to the Max Fleischer Animation Studios. For the first time, audiences witnessed Superman's ability to fly, his incredible strength and his miraculous speed. Listen to this warning. He plans to strike tonight. A mad scientist threatening Metropolis with a... uh an electrothunasia ray, as they say in the cartoon, but it's some kind of a ray gun. I mean, it's really not much of a plot, but it's just visually spectacular. There's hardly any dialogue in the cartoon. Superman's next big break came in 1952, when The Adventures of Superman debuted on primetime TV. And TV did what it always does. Suddenly, Superman was in our living rooms, accessible to every kid with comic-stained fingers. Clark Kent was real. We thought of him as a friend. He even told us which cereal to have for breakfast. Frosted Flakes are sure good. Try a box right away. Tell him, Tony. Great! The TV show was smart and snappy, sometimes a bit dark. George Reeves played the hero as a warm, sophisticated guy. I think I'll drive out to the well. What for? Oh, nothing. Look around. Maybe talk to the watchman. Good idea. I'll go with you. Now, Lois, what do you possibly expect to find out there this time of night? What do you expect to find, Mr. Kent? (laughs) All right. Come along. To work with him was terrific because he was always full of fun, was a uh, very accomplished actor and leading man. I knew exactly what he was doing as Clark Kent and as Superman. Jack Larson played Jimmy Olsen and uh, enjoyed doing the stunts, and he did almost all the stunts himself, and uh, loved going through the walls. Put him in a very bad mood if the walls just melted when he, when he hit them. He liked them to pop out towards the camera, and generally uh, Jimmy uh, would say, golly, Superman, I never thought you'd get here in time. <laughs> Jim, a word of advice. After this, keep out of other people's safes. You bet. It had never been done as a musical, and therefore we had the first opportunity of uh, satirizing it. Composer Charles Strauss. He and his collaborators brought Superman to the Broadway stage. The 1966 production was called It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. Bob Holiday played the lead role. With the character now translated as a musical, Superman had to sing songs about his internal life because, well, that's what you do in musicals. Now we could see the vulnerable side of the Man of Steel. Why must the strongest man in the world be the saddest man? Tell me why don't they know? Uh, got wonderful notices. It should have been running still, 
but something happened, and what happened was Batman uh, came on television, which was just an out-and-out hoot. We got killed by Cape Lash. But the musical sensitivity to the hero's inner feelings didn't die with it. The guys who wrote the book for the musical, Robert Benton and David Newman, went on to do the screenplay for the 1978 film starring Christopher Reeve. Oh, uh, can I uh, take you to the airport? Not unless you can fly. <laughs> this version of Superman had it all. The sci-fi mythos, the bustling big city newspaper, the evil madman, the love triangle involving Lois Lane, the in-your-face action and the psychological depth. Since that film came out, the comic books have married Superman off to Lois Lane, had him killed in a battle with an arch-villain, and then resurrected him a couple of different ways. TV's Lois and Clark showed us Superman's romantic side, and Smallville showed us Superman's teen years. But Christopher Reeve may stick in our minds as the definitive Superman, getting his necktie caught indoors as Clark Kent, or soaring high over Metropolis towards the horizon. Bye. Thanks to Jocelyn Gonzalez for that story. Of course, Superman movies are still coming out. Iron Man, Captain America, The Hulk, Batman, X-Men, Spider-Man. Superheroes have never been as dominant in our culture. But the comic books where they got their start don't sell that much anymore. Comic books today are a research and development wing of the motion picture industry. I remember seeing Superman the movie with my mom at a Twilight show uh, opening night. That's Brian Singer, the Gen Xer and X-Men director who made Superman Returns in 2006. Action. He never read comics much. It was the Christopher Reeve Superman that he fell in love with. I'd seen Star Wars the previous year, which everyone was overwhelmed by. And the visual effects, though they weren't as sophisticated as Star Wars, because of the way Chris Reeve played it and the sheer audacity of what was happening in it, I was very taken by it, particularly uh, you know, in, in the third act, even though he does a completely absurd thing by spinning around the earth and turning it you know, time backwards, which is exceedingly implausible, even for a you know, 12-year-old. I bought into it and, and loved it. When you started talking to Warner Brothers about making Superman Returns, what was your pitch? My pitch was counter to what they had been developing for about eight. They had been developing a retelling of the origin story. And I feel that the Richard Donner film was kind of a classic. And if you're younger and don't remember it, you've got Smallville or at least a memory of who Superman is in his origin. So I, I pitched a return story. My initial idea was that he was somewhere. He didn't. He could have been off the earth. He could have been somewhere living on a farm someplace. But either way, he would return after an absence of a number of years and find that the world had moved on in a way and that Lois Lane, uh, who he viewed as his you know, one true love, had also moved on. I moved on. So did the rest of us. The world doesn't need a savior. And neither do I. She has a fiancé, she's a working mom, there's a child. Well, I guess you've been gone. Fearless reporter Lois Lane is a mommy. And how does Superman navigate through that? that you know, I, I try to think of something besides kryptonite that would pose as an insurmountable obstacle for Superman. How do you keep providing drama for a character who is almost invulnerable, can do almost anything, and doesn't age? You play up the Clark-Superman dichotomy, and you give them heartache. 
Gerard Jones, the biographer, sees something slightly kinky about the Superman-Clark-Lois love triangle. She was contemptuous of his real identity, and he'd sort of snivel and grovel around her. But then the, the joke with the viewers was that, oh, well, he's really the hero whom she admires. So there's this weird sort of sadistic and masochistic quality. He's willing to suffer under Lois Lane's high heels, but then what we know is that he actually has the power to turn it around and embarrass her terribly or to keep her chasing the Superman who wants nothing to do with her. In other words, it's good farce because it can make these sharp observations about how men and women really act in romantic relationships. When Margot Kidder played Lois Lane in the Superman movies, she was tapping into personal experience. My life history with men, which has been disastrous, is that I would become, when I still had my hormones, this uh, monosyllabic idiot when confronted with someone I had a crush on and reverted to being about six. And then when I was with guys who were friends who I wasn't that interested in, I was kind of this bossy, pushy character. So I thought we'd just give that to Lois. How'd you like your first day on the job? Oh, well, um, gosh, on the whole, I'd say it's been swell. Swell? Now, why would Superman, or Kal-El, in his everyday charade, play Clark Kent as a super loser? Jules Pfeiffer asked that question in an essay he wrote in the 1960s called The Great Comic Book Heroes. How can one be a cowardly star reporter subject to fainting spells in times of crisis and not expect to raise serious questions? The truth may be that Kent existed not for the purposes of the story, but for the reader. He is Superman's opinion of the rest of us, a pointed caricature of what we, the non-criminal element, were really like. The character of Clark lets me imagine that if I was a real nebbish, which I'm not, that I might have a cape hidden under my jacket. That's why we loved him so. For if that wasn't really us, if there were no Clark Kent's, only lots of glasses and cheap suits, which, when removed, revealed all of us now true identities, what a hell of an improved world it would have been. And Superman needs Clark. MIT professor Henry Jenkins says that together they're a classic American archetype, familiar to anybody who's watched Westerns. The law-abiding guy who couldn't shoot his own foot and, and the strong man who does the job and then rides off into the sunset at the end. I mean, you literally see that in a Western, not too far after that period, something like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, John Ford's film, where you have the John Wayne character and the Jimmy Stewart character, and they represent the two sides of the duality. You better start packing a handgun. I don't want to kill him. I want to put him in jail. But it's as if in the Superman mythos, Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne were the same person. Out here, a man settles his own problems. Well, I'm a lawyer! And Clark Kent, of course, is a mild-mannered reporter. Clark Kent may seem like just a mild-mannered reporter, but listen, not only does he know how to treat his editor-in-chief with the proper respect, not only does he have a snappy, punchy prose style, but he is, in my 40 years in this business, the fastest typist I've ever seen. You'd kind of think Superman in his day job would be a firefighter or an ER doctor, something more action-packed and heroic than a reporter. Producer Derek John had the same thought. There's no getting around it. Superman's day job does seem odd today. And I'm not alone. Just ask Stephen Colbert. Superman knows he's much more effective against his enemies if no one knows who he really is. So he disguised himself as the one thing farthest from a hero, a journalist. And Ouch. 
But there was a time when the Clark Kents of the world were just as heroic as Superman. And besides, there were practical considerations, too. Working for a newspaper, you have a flexible schedule. You can run into the coat closet, strip down to your underwear, fly off, and save the world. Tom Henderson is a columnist at the Lewiston Tribune in Lewiston, Idaho. And you can have long, unexplained absences, which is one of the things I like about my real job. Henderson has been known to dress up as Clark Kent for Halloween and still buys the latest issue at his local comic book store. His favorite clips adorn his office wall under the heading, Everything I Need to Know About Journalism I Learned from Superman. A quote from Superman that I always like is, I don't want to exploit your situation, but in my line of work I see a lot of tragedy. I've watched friends die. I've had to do my job amid all manner of inhumanity. But I do it because I believe I can help, because I believe that the press serves the public. Clark Kent was invented because Jerry wanted to be a journalist. Thomas Andre conducted an interview with Jerry Siegel back in the 70s. And Jerry wrote a one-act play in high school called The Fighting Journalist because Jerry was very interested in progressive causes and people who fought the establishment. There is also a crusading aspect to journalism. There's that need to or that desire to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. The boys' high school crush on journalism was a product of their era. Both worked on their high school rag, The Torch, and Schuster used to hawk papers as a newsboy for the Toronto Daily Star. In fact, Clark Kent was at the Daily Star originally. And by the time he joined the Daily Planet, America's free press was proving itself on the front lines of World War II. This is Trafalgar Square. The noise that you hear at the moment is the sound of the air raid sirens. Ed Murrow is not Superman, but the fact that he's willing to sort of put himself on the line like that to get the story, I think, carries over into these comic book images. Richard Ness is the author of the book From Headline Hunter to Superman. He says the Daily Planet was just like any other newspaper. You always had the hard-bitten editor who was yelling at everybody. I want the real story. What's he got hidden under that cape of his? Batteries? I tell you, boys and girls, whichever one of you gets it out of is going to wind up with the single most important interview since God talked to Moses. You always had the copy boy who wanted to become a reporter and idolize the guys who were... Clark, we've got to go to Henderson with this. Sure, let's go. Not you, Jim. You've got some work to do. Oh! Jim? Jeepers! You always had the tough female reporter who sort of held her own against the guys. And let's get something straight. I did not work my buns off to become an investigative reporter for the Daily Planet just to babysit some hack from Nowheresville. Lois was the spitting image of ace reporter Torchy Blaine, who was the lead in a bunch of screwball comedies from the early 30s. She also sounded a lot like Rosalind Russell in 1940s His Girl Friday. Now get this, you double-crossing chimpanzee. There ain't going to be any interview and there ain't going to be any story. I wouldn't cover the burning of Rome for you if they were just lighting it up. In Superman from 1978, Margot Kidder as Lois Lane was just as brassy. But she was also living in a country still reeling from Watergate. Why are you here? There must be a reason for you to be here. Yes, mm-hmm. I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way. <laughs> going to end up fighting every elected official in this country. Only nine years later in Superman 4, the press looked just as bad as the politicians. And the Daily Planet had a new Rupert Murdoch-like owner, who turned it into a sleazy tabloid. Tone down our headlines. Slacy, that's all the common man reads. Well, we can do with a little less sensationalism. Less sensational papers go broke. Ironically, the same year Christopher Reeve made his last appearance as Clark Kent, he played another journalist in a movie called Street Smart, based on true events. 
He plays a New York reporter who sort of makes things up and manipulates a story. So it's almost like he's shedding the last vestiges of that Clark Kent image in, in that movie. You're not getting me. I'm trying to tell you there aren't any notes. There's no notes, no tapes, nothing. He made the whole thing up. It's fiction. It's a little unsettling to hear the voice of the mild-mannered reporter admit to fabricating his stories. But for Tom Henderson, the Idaho columnist, Clark Kent was never so squeaky clean. Here he is making the news while he's reporting it. From a basic ethical standpoint, I don't think he would pass muster with Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics. He often writes about, you know, Superman in very glowing terms. It's one of those things you have to accept within the ecosystem of comics and not apply too much of a real-world standard to a man who flies around with his underwear on the outside of his pants. Nowadays, the only journalists in their underwear are bloggers. But not Clark Kent. He's always stuck in the past with his pencil and notebook. Why is that? Maybe we don't want to face up to what he might look like today. Someone less mild-mannered. Hi, I'm Bill O'Reilly. Thank you for watching us tonight. Truth, justice, and the American way. The code of Superman. Is it the code of the United States? Derek John produced that story. When we return, the earthlings who filled Superman's costume right down to the codpiece. I used to ping on them because they were made of steel. That's next in this hour of Studio 360's American Icons from PRI and WNYC. There should be a club called the Fortress of Solitude, like a dance club. Is there one? No, there should be. The artist William Pope L. remembers the pull that the Superman TV show had on him. My Aunt Jenny, whenever I came home from school, she'd be sitting on her bed. This little old woman who was like maybe four feet seven, she'd be sitting on it with little legs dangling, watching this TV at this white man flying through the air. She loved this man. She, she, and I, I didn't know how much she loved him until one day I came home from school, and I was sitting on the bed with her with both our feet dangling, and, and I was interrupted. The men had landed on the moon. She said, where's my program? I said, well, Jenny, this is like a big event, you know. She says, if God had meant man to be on the moon, he would have put us there. Where's my program? She didn't believe we'd gone to the moon. She believed in Superman. Man of steel, man of heart, tame our ways if we start. I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is Studio 360. Today, we're looking into an American icon, Superman. The artist, William Pope L., when he grew up, was inspired by his old Aunt Jenny to try on the Superman role for himself. I thought it'd be interesting to embody this role, but only have a limited set of tools. But really try very, very, very hard over a long period of time. William Popel was 46 when he started the project. He had back trouble, and he spent years crawling on his belly up Broadway in a Superman suit for the performance piece he called The Great White Way. He covered 22 miles in all. I want people to connect to this will to seemingly futile action and to think about how we as a nation, maybe visualized through the Superman body, uh, extend ourselves in the world, for example. How far do we have to extend our might and control in order to feel comfortable with ourselves? 
as you call, it becomes more painful and more painful. And then you really see how much will extracts as a, uh, as a demand, you know. And then you say, do I really, really want to be this willful? Superman isn't supposed to remind us of our mortality. He's supposed to make us dream of transcending it. He hasn't aged a bit for the better part of a century. And every major incarnation of Superman looks pretty much like the last and the next. Fair skin, black hair, strong jaw, blue eyes, totally ripped. He had to be someone who steps out of your collective memory of who the character is, which is is like a, a strange combination of all those things. When Brian Singer was casting the role for Superman Returns, he didn't go with a star. My longest stint uh, was on a soap I was on for a year on One Life to Live. Brandon Routh got the role. You know, I think I was definitely in a good position for this role because nobody knew who I was and I'd done some work. But if I would have booked a few teen films and on all these things along the way, which would have been good for my pocketbook, they could have made it harder for me to get this role because I wouldn't have been an unknown. Well, so you're, you're 26, right? Yes. Which is the same age as Christopher Reeve was when he first played Superman and similarly an unknown kind of ingenue. Were there aspects of his performance that you purposely tried to emulate or, or avoid? Uh, well, not purposely tried to emulate or, or avoid, I don't think. Um, I mean, I was very conscious of his performance. I'd seen it many times. I grew up, he was my Superman. So when I first read the script, because I had not done any work on the character, I was basically reading it through him. I was picturing him doing these things. But to change something for the sake of ego, to go completely another way, well, there's no way Brian would have let that happen anyway, but, but I wasn't about to fight for something like that. Another thing you don't mess with if you're doing a Superman movie is the costume. Director Brian Singer has also made movies based on the X-Men comics, and in those, he reimagined the characters in sexy, tough leather. Superman doesn't need leather. He's the man of steel. Bullets bounce off him, not his suit. It's also a reflection of his heritage. He's kind of the ultimate immigrant, and he wears his heritage with a kind of pride, and that's why it's okay that he has a red cape, blue tights, the crest on his chest. I think it takes a very particular kind of human being who can be masculine and attractive in leotard and tights. Susan Hilferty is a costume designer for Broadway shows. The minute he feels uncomfortable in it, then it's going to be icky for anybody else looking at it. That was the part about Christopher Reeve that seems so spectacular, is that he seemed completely comfortable in this peculiar garb. Peculiar is one word for it. The producers at one point when they were talking about Superman said, well, he has a big one or he has nothing, referring to his genitalia. That's Reeves' co-star, Margot Kidder. And so they put Christopher in various sizes of codpiece, which was really horrible. This was when we first started, and I used to ping on them because they were made of steel. And, and then he'd scream, stop it, Kidder, for God's sake, Kidder, stop it, stop it. Superman's costume was modeled after the kind of suit that bodybuilders wore in the 1930s. And that's particularly evident when you look at the earliest drawings. The neckline is much lower. But the outfit doesn't just accent the male physique. Susan Hilferty thinks the emblem on the chest is about something else. Power. It's a shield shape. So that if you look at the shields of the Middle Ages, just as you could 
probably look at a policeman's badge or if you look at the emblems that soldiers wear and their uniforms. When you look, you pick up comic books of the 1940s and it's very easy to see what's on people's minds. It's the war. Michael Shaban is the author of The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, a novel about two teenage boys who create a superhero in the 1930s, not unlike Siegel and Schuster. Superman's emblem reminds him of another symbol. It's all right there. Big swastikas everywhere. And so, yeah, the swastika is a kind of a Superman S or a Batman bat. Uh, it's sort of... Um, the mark, the imprint that strength makes on weaker material. Does Superman's S really share something with the swastika? Kind of. Shaban sees the S as a reply to the swastika, created by two Jewish boys who wanted to fight fire with fire. Fascism is inherently appealing to people who have no power and who are weak, and so is Superman. You know, I mean, Superman was created by a couple of guys who had no power and were weak and wished they were strong and could do more than they could with their bodies. I mean, fascism is all about bodies and strength and power and the imposition of will, and that's what Superman is all about. Even the name Superman comes from Hitler's favorite philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who said that an average man could gain power by rejecting morality. Of course... Our Superman always uses his power for good. But MIT's Henry Jenkins thinks any fantasy of absolute power has a dark side. There's built into the superhero tradition a kind of fascist mentality that might makes right, that power in the hands of the right people should govern absolutely. The cartoonist Jules Pfeiffer sees it as a little more benign. It's not just the fascists who want to be fascists. Everybody, in his mind, wants to have ultimate authority. I mean, it comes out of a period of time when fascism is actually being seriously considered in American society. The 30s, people were saying, what we need is a strong leader. And what they had in mind was someone like FDR, who packed the Supreme Court, who went beyond what the Constitution dictated, the powers of the federal government, all in the name of the public good. And in his early comic book incarnation, Superman looked very much like a big government New Deal liberal. Superman was initially conceived very much as a champion of the meek and the oppressed against the the powerful and strong. Somebody who was going to intercede on the side of the little guy against the big bosses. In one of the early Superman stories, Action Comics number 8, in January 1939, Superman confronts juvenile delinquency. It's not entirely your fault you're delinquent. It's these slums, your poor living conditions. If there was only some way I could remedy it. So Superman starts to tear down the whole slum himself in order to put up decent public housing. The National Guard is sent out to capture him and stop him, and the Army Air Force is called in too. Orders are to blast him off the face of the earth. But the bombs just burst around him, of course, and help him take apart the tenements. During the next weeks, the wreckage is cleared. Emergency squads commence erecting huge apartment projects. And in time, the slums are replaced by splendid housing conditions. The early Superman was even a peacenik. In the second Action Comics, July 1938, 
on the very eve of World War II, Superman captures two commanders of the opposing armies. What do you want with us? I've decided to end this war by having you two fight it out between yourselves. But the... Go ahead, fight, or I'll clean up on both of you myself. But why should we fight? They're not angry at each other. Then why are your armies battling? I don't know. Can you tell me? No. Can you? Gentlemen, it's obvious you've been fighting only to promote the sale of munitions. Why not shake hands and make up? The editors of DC Comics pretty quickly put an end to that kind of radicalism. And after World War II, congressional hearings on comic books forced the whole industry to make their superheroes models of good citizenship. By the time you get to the late 40s and 50s, he's a total establishment figure. He works under the guidance of the federal government. He never pits himself against the nation. Although one thing the Superman comics have always done, which the movies don't, is to look critically at the uses of power, the ethics of it. Superman and Batman have these heated discussions about being a vigilante versus working within the system. DC Comics even published a series that questioned Superman's commitment to the American way. What would happen if the spaceship landed not in Kansas, but in Soviet Georgia? That series of comics was called Red Sun, and in its alternative history, little baby Kal-El from Krypton lands behind the Iron Curtain. Tell your friends they don't have to be scared or hungry anymore, comrades. Superman is here to rescue them. Superman finds himself working for Stalin and becomes part of the sort of celebration of the powerful worker in Stalinist Russia. And Lex Luthor, the capitalist, becomes the defender of truth, justice, in the American way. It's such a shame he works for the other side. I honestly believe that Superman and I would have been the best of friends if he'd popped up in America. For anyone who's grown up reading the books, that sort of shift of sides is, you know, very disturbing and very interesting because it forces to think about what's American about Superman and what would happen if that same mentality that the powerful being is always right was mapped onto a different political system. And this Soviet Superman even goes to war against the United States. But in the end of Red Sun, he realizes the errors of the values he's been taught, and the Soviet Union crumbles. At the very least, even working for dictators, Superman's intentions are always good. He doesn't lie, he doesn't cave in to temptation, and he's never a bully. He is just what he is. He's just the S for super. The moral voice who says this is good, this is bad, and okay, kids, here's how to be good, and here's how to be bad. It reminds us of our own childhood. It reminds us of times we felt safe and secure. Superman was created just before America saved Europe from the Nazis, on the cusp of an era when our bomb and our economy gave us unprecedented power around the globe. How would we use it to cure social problems, rough up bad guys, bring democracy to other nations, or just wipe our enemies off the face of the earth? In this relativistic age, we might believe there's no such thing as right and wrong anymore, but he blessedly comes from a simpler age and believes that there is, and never seems to want anything for it. I mean, it is pure altruism. It is altruism in action. These days, I suppose he'd be given a Nobel Peace Prize, but he, does, he seems to be beyond wanting those sorts of rewards either. To that degree, he seems to represent some yearning for purity. Superman still helps us believe that we can have almost absolute power and that we'll always use it for good. And he endures because he's how we Americans like to think of ourselves. 
modest, courteous, awesome, and not above rescuing the occasional cat from a tree. Thank you for listening to this hour of Studio 360's American Icons. For more about Superman and all the American icons in our series, you can visit us at studio360.org. Our show today was produced by Jonathan Mitchell and Eric Malinsky. David Krasnow was our editor. Kevin Parizo and Matt Walton were the voices of the Superman comics. Since we first aired this episode in 2006, Jack Larson has died. Henry Jenkins is now a professor at the University of Southern California, and Tom Henderson is a reporter at the McMinnville News Register in Oregon. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, why Amy Mann wrote a song from our president's point of view. I hate when people do this armchair diagnosis, but what the hell, let's go. Um, I think he probably has a little dementia. I think he is wildly narcissistic. Amy Mann plays live in our studio. That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.